Hello, and welcome to the Field Guides. I'm Steve, and I'm here with Bill. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Steve. Well, this is our 19th episode. Wow. And what we're going to do today, and over the course of many future episodes, is give you the experience of what it's like to be out in the field, in the woods, and on the trail. For every episode, we pick a natural history topic, research the science on that topic, head out to a natural spot, and share with you everything we learned about it. And if this is your first episode, we highly recommend wearing headphones, because all of our episodes are recorded with a bi-directional mic, and headphones really give you the experience that you're out here with us. Today will be a good day for that, because yeah. we are out on a early spring day, and there's lots of birds around. There sure is. <laughs> we are at a place called the Taylor Road family recreational site which is one of the least interesting names for a park i've ever heard <laughs> so this is a, a town park in one of the suburbs of buffalo and we are in a what would you call this probably a second growth woods right yeah a little Trees. bit there's a lot of standing dead wood it's kind of nice there is. the forest floor right now is just exploding with lots of uh, wildflowers coming up uh, lots of trout lily leaves oh yeah we saw a few that are almost in flower yeah so the flowers are just getting ready to open so besides our topic for today i bet we're going to come across a lot of good stuff too like a lawnmower <laughs> that's a golf course over there oh yeah okay <laughs> all right so the topic for today oh uh, bill before we get into today's topic i think we should just tell the listeners that they should make sure to listen all the way to the end because we have a special announcement about the future of the podcast. <laughs> it's actually not that serious. Just the next few episodes anyway. Might so. be a little different, right? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, listen up for that at the end. So like we said, it's an incredibly beautiful day, and we're going to ruin that. <laughs> by talking about what I think is probably the grossest topic that we have discussed so far. I think so. Yeah. I'm really grossed out by ticks, and that's exactly what we're talking about. In fact, last weekend I had ticks crawling on me. I was at Zor Valley. I went off path a little bit to uh, take a leak, <laughs> and when I got back to my car, I just noticed that there was ticks crawling on me, and that was disgusting. Well, it's a good thing you saw them, though. Oh, yeah. Because I know your, your grooming practices are not the best. So. They're definitely not the best. <laughs> All right, so... I want to introduce the topic with a little uh, a little story, a bit of good parenting on my part, I feel. Okay. So in prep for this episode, I've been, you know, doing a lot of reading, but the other day I was listening to the, the Stuff You Should Know uh, podcast episode about ticks. Okay. I was listening to it in the car with my uh, six-year-old daughter in the back seat, and partway through the episode, she says, Daddy, do we have to worry about ticks around here? I'm thinking, oh my gosh, she's not going to go want to go outside anymore. She's going to be freaked out <laughs> about ticks. What am I going to do? Very quickly... I had the perfect response. I said, don't worry, honey, because we are much more likely to die in a car accident than from any ticks. <laughs> Daddy, I never want to drive with you ever again. I said, whoo. <laughs> All right, I made it through that one. Okay. <laughs> oh, boy. I also have sort of an interesting experience with not getting ticks. So I think I've mentioned before, my family owns 100 acres down in the southern tier in New York. Yeah, you talk about it all the time. And uh, we have about 15 to 20 acres of field that we just walk through. It's like high grass. Uh, we trailblaze with our ATVs through the field. All the grass species are just like so high that you can't see where you're going. <laughs> and there's bugs and stuff flying all over us all the time when we did it. Our whole lives growing up, never had a tick ever in my life that I know of. Well, I mean, yeah. they are the, the prevalence of ticks. They're spreading, right? Oh, yeah. Spreading. Now I'm nervous about right. <laughs> going down to my cabin. Even if they haven't been somewhere one year, they could be there the next. So, And uh, if you want to be blissfully ignorant about ticks, 
<laughs> Maybe this is the wrong episode to listen to. <laughs> <laughs> right. But it is important to note that the tick problem up in New York should be getting worse. So this is a good episode to listen to. In prep Just, for the hiking season. Yeah. Exactly right. I mean, because the spring and the summer are really the, the most aggressive months in that regard. Yeah. And, uh... Ticks aren't that scary. You just got to know how to prepare for them and hike with that in mind. And actually, one of the last uh, things I came across yesterday was, as I was researching, was an article that was titled, Five Reasons Not to Freak Out About Ticks. Okay. So I think that's... Number one, Lyme disease. Number two, Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever. Number three... <laughs> no, those are the reasons to, you know, be cautious, I guess. I guess. I'm glad you did not say freak out, but... I think I'm going to save that for the end because I think that's a, that's a good way to wrap up. Sure. Uh, all right. So, what do you want to start with? Well, I was thinking a nice place to start would just be to describe what a tick is. Sure. So, Bill, you know me. I'm a little obsessed with taxonomy, a so I'm going to try to describe what a tick is in more or less a hierarchical sense. Ah. So, <laughs> right. I'll just I'll run through it. I'll be back in a few minutes. Yeah. <laughs> so, first of all, it's an animal. <laughs> Oh no, I started too broadly. <laughs> Narrow it down for you. <laughs> All right, it's uh, it's in the phylum Arthropoda. All right, makes right? Sense. so okay, we're getting somewhere, you know. <laughs> Arthropods, they are the most successful animal on the planet. Insects, arachnids, centipedes, crustaceans, a whole bunch of different animals. There's tons of them. One thing that'll just be a good visual is that you can actually break down the word arthropod. So arthron is Greek for joint and podos is Greek for foot. So they're a joint-legged animal. Okay. So just imagine all these animals all have that in common. Nice. All right, now we move down to the class. They're arachnids. But not spiders. Right, but spiders are arachnids. So, right. so they're <laughs> yeah. related right, right, to right. spiders. This group is going to be like spiders, scorpions, mites, harvestmen. Or I call them daddy longlegs. Yes. Yeah, okay. That's the proper name. Yeah, and ticks. So these guys usually have one to two body parts, and they have four pairs of legs and no antennae. Right, so, but the difference between ticks and spiders is that spiders have two segments to their bodies, where ticks have an unsegmented body. Yep, they kind of look like a big head. With two little eyes, sort of in the front-ish of their body. So now that we got the arachnid thing out of the way, we're going to blow past the subclass Akari, and we're going to actually go past the superorder Parasitiforms. <laughs> I'm so bad at saying orders. But they are parasites. That's a good point to notice. Part of the reason I'm blowing past it is that these groups are literally just all mites and ticks. And I don't even want to talk about mites, because they're easily one of the most diverse and successful groups of arthropods. It's insane. They have, like, as of 1997, there was over 48,200 species wow. documented, whereas there's just under 900 species of ticks. So there's a huge difference in that regard. And we're going to talk about every one. <laughs> yeah. So now we're going to make it down to the order Ixodida. <laughs> I'm sounds, so bad at pronouncing these names. That sounds right. But we're finally at the ticks. So <laughs> these guys are a monophyletic group, meaning that their ancestor and all of its descendants are all ticks. Uh, everything can be grouped together pretty easily like that. One common ancestor? All the families of ticks have a common ancestor that was also a tick. Yeah, like yeah. the Adam and Eve tick. <laughs> the Adam and Eve of ticks. Yeah. Okay, so within this order, there's three families, 19 genera, and like I said, just under 900 species worldwide. And an interesting thing about ticks is that how we said arachnids have four legs. Four pairs of legs. Four. Sorry. <laughs> arachnids have four pairs of legs. Ticks... 
sometimes their larval stages will only have three pairs of legs. Right. So when they're young, they'll only have six legs, but then in the later stages of life, they'll have the eight legs. Exactly right, yeah. And now we're finally down to the families. So let's start with the hard ticks, Ixodidae. So these make up the majority of the ticks. This is something like over 78% of all ticks that we know of are hard ticks. So what this means morphologically is that this family of ticks, they have a hardened scutum, which is essentially just like a hard shield that they have on their back. Correct. Yeah, which the soft ticks won't have, but we'll get to them in a minute. They also have apical mouth parts, meaning that the mouth is right on the the tip of the front of their body. Right, so if you're looking down at the tick, it looks like you can see a head-like structure on one end of the tick. That's actually just their mouth. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And the last important characteristic of the hard ticks is that they have numerous denticles or tooth-like projections on something called their hypostome. And the Uh, hypostome is the part that they stab into you. That's the really gross part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's described as like a harpoon-like structure. Mm -hmm. It's located right near the mouth parts, and that's what it uses to anchor itself to its host before it starts feeding. Because it's barbed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the barbs on the hypostome point back toward the tick. Mm -hmm. So they stick that puppy in, and then those barbs latch on, and that's why it can be difficult to remove a tick. They don't just fall off. When I was looking at it, do you know what it reminded me of? Uh, It reminded me of one of those hose barbs or barbed nipples. They're the things you put like a hose onto, or even if you have a hydration pack. Oh, okay. So it slides on easy, but it's really hard to get it off. Yeah. Right. So we talked about the notable morphological aspects of the hard ticks, but in terms of their behavior, this family, they can ingest more than 100 times their body weight in blood while they're feeding, and they actually concentrate the blood meal by secreting the excess water up to like 60 to 70% back into the host via their salivary glands. Yeah. Yeah. So that's disgusting. This is primarily the way hard ticks are giving us diseases. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll jump into that a little more. Exactly right. Besides the hypostome, there's also uh, the chelicery. So those are the two mouth parts that they use to basically tear a hole in your skin Mm. and then the hypostome goes in and then some ticks also secrete a cement-like substance with their saliva it dissolves when the tick drops off but what that does is it obviously it cements them even more to the host so it makes it even harder for them to fall off and they also send in some anti-clotting substances Mm -hmm. to keep the blood flowing but the sneaky part is, unlike fleas or some other uh, insects that need to latch on, none of these things usually, depending on the species, irritate you. So the host doesn't feel this. I mean, it sounds horrible. They're tearing your skin and sticking <laughs> something in you. But they're so small. They're so tiny that uh, it usually doesn't cause itching or swelling or anything like that. They're just tearing into you and, and you don't even know it. Yeah. <laughs> They're devious. (laughs) Until it's too late anyway, right? (laughs) Right, until it's too late. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, yes, this is gross, but from an evolutionary standpoint, it's pretty amazing. Oh, definitely. So, you ready to jump into the soft ticks? Sure. Okay. That sounds so gross. (laughs) (laughs) So, the soft ticks in the family Argacidae, these guys are actually a bit different from the hard ticks. Like I said, they make up a lot fewer of the ticks worldwide. Right. There's only about 193 species. These guys don't have the scutum, so they don't have that hardened shield on their back. They have a leathery integument. A what? Basically just the epidermis. So, Skin. Yeah. And lastly, they have ventral 
anterior mouth parts. So the mouth parts, they look like they're under the body. Right, so if you look down at one of these soft ticks, you don't see the mouth parts. Yeah. Uh, you just see the gross back of the <laughs> Right, and often there's a little hood that hangs over the front of the tick, and oh. it covers up the mouth parts as well. Right. So here's the difference between the soft ticks and the hard ticks in terms of the way they feed. Unlike the hard ticks, the soft ticks, meaning that the adults, the nymphs, and some of the larvae, they feed rapidly on your blood, and they become engorged yeah, they don't very latch quickly. Up. They don't latch on as long as the hard ticks do. Yeah, yeah. The hard ticks can be on for days right. or weeks, maybe. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so like I said, these guys can become engorged very fast, so it can take minutes to hours for this to happen. So the amount of blood that they can take up is limited by the amount that their integument can expand. So this means that they can really only uptake blood two to ten times their initial body weight. And remember what I said about the hard ticks. They can expand to 100 times their body weight. Even more in some of them. And remember how the hard ticks sort of release that excess fluid back inside of you? Yeah. The soft ticks do not do that. They have coxal glands. So these are glands that are on, it's like the first segment of the leg. And that's where they exude the excess liquid. But they really can't concentrate the blood as well as the hard ticks can. All right. And then you said, is that all about soft ticks? That's all I have with the soft ticks. But then you said there's a third group? There is. There's a third family. All right. I didn't find that. So this last family is the Natalilidae. <laughs> it's only found in South Africa, and it's actually more basal in terms of its ancestry compared to the other two families. What does that mean? So it has the characteristics of what their ancestor would have. Oh, so it's most like the farthest tick back. Right. I don't blame you for not hearing about this tick, because as of 2011, or as of the paper that I read, only 51 specimens have ever been studied. And I think only 34 of those had DNA work done. Okay, so it hasn't been studied very thoroughly. No, no, no. But it's been studied enough to know that it is the basal specimen. Though, an interesting thing is that it actually has traits that are kind of like a mix between the two other families. So they thought that, that this species originally might have been like the missing link between the two species, but it's more along the lines that it's just more ancestral. So it's not hard or soft, it's the what? Squishy? Squishy? (laughs) Well, well, I'll just try to quickly explain that. So they have a partly hardened pseudoscutum. Ouch. So, so, so it's, so it's sort of like what the hard ticks have, right. a little bit of that shield. Um, and they have the apical mouth parts. So that's very much like the hard ticks, yeah. but they also have a leathery integument. So that's, like I said, that's the tough outer protection layer. And it has a few denticles on the hypostome. So like I said, the hard ticks have a lot of those denticles. The soft ticks have few. So these characteristics, the leathery integument and the few denticles are like the soft ticks. All right. Right. So these guys are kind of interesting because when they captured them alive, they tried to have them feed on a bunch of different things. They tried to have them feed on chickens and pigeons and rabbits and mice, but none of them would take blood. Why? I don't know. The only thing they could get them to take blood from were skinks. What? (laughs) Yeah. Um, And so in their environment, they live in very uh, xeric, like dry conditions, and they kind of hang out in like little rock crevices. And they also found that skinks hang out in rock crevices as well. So they're like, oh, well, there's good reason to think that maybe they attached to skinks. We just haven't found it yet. And then using some DNA work, they did find that there was lizard DNA associated with uh, with these ticks. So are they they thinking they're host, like, specific? So the only thing they could get them to feed on 
were lizards, but like I said before, there were some older specimens found that they didn't do DNA work on. The majority of them were found in museum collections. So they found them, they actually found them on meerkat and kangaroo pelts, like museum skins that they would have. They found dead ones. Dead ones, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So they must feed on mammals, I guess. But just but, not in captivity? But they've never, well, they've never found it. They've never observed it. Right. So the only thing they can get them to feed on were lizards. So it seems like they feed on other things, but the only thing we have really good evidence for, because we've actually seen it, are the, are the skinks. Right. Yeah. So like the soft ticks, these guys can't really expand too much when they take blood in. Their weight can only really increase by 5 to 14 times uh, when they're uh, engorged. Okay. So that would very likely be because of that leathery integument that both the soft ticks and this family also has. So like the soft body tick, these guys also feed very slowly and they do exude some secretions, but they don't excrete them like the hard ticks or the soft ticks. It's actually anal secretions. Mmm. Yeah. Yummy. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> but again, they do feed like the soft body ticks. And what this suggests is that the soft bodied tick uh, blood feeding behavior is probably a trait that evolved in the common ancestor. And the way that the hard ticks uh, feed blood, that evolved later, probably because of a switch in hosts. So maybe when they moved on to birds and mammals, they started to adapt to feeding in different ways. And the last interesting thing about this uh, species is that South Africa has more or less maintained its semi-arid environment since Permian times. So How long ago is that? It's around 250 million years ago. Okay. Yeah, I mean, there's a, a big range sure, there, but sure. <laughs> yeah. <We're ballpark>. uh, <laughs> uh, but the preference for these dry environments and small reptiles suggests that this little guy may actually have been maintaining this type of lifestyle for, like I said, like 250 million years, and that would actually make him somewhat a living fossil in a lot of ways. Uh, okay, yeah. I mean, because if that environment hasn't changed very much, right? and he's had the same type of prey for a long time. <laughs> if it's working for him. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the last thing I have to say on those guys, but I just thought that was pretty interesting. Steve took up all our time. Yeah. uh, (laughs) All right. So I wanted to talk about uh, life cycle. Okay. And I will say that most of my research focused on uh, Lyme disease and the particular species of tick here in the Northeast that can transmit Lyme disease. And this is something that's worth noting is that despite having 900 species of ticks worldwide, there's very few ticks that can actually transmit diseases to humans. Really? Yeah. They're very few. In the United States, we really only have to worry about five or six. Yes, but the flip side of that is there is only one animal disease vector that transmits more diseases than ticks. Oh, what is it? So tick is number two. What mm-hmm. do you think number one is? Just, I mean, usually when, Rats? You, think, when you think of a disease carrying... A human? <laughs> human to human. I, mean, I said rats, and then my second guess was humans. Right. It's mosquitoes. Oh, mosquitoes. Yeah. That that should have been more obvious than I was making it up to be. So they're number one. So, you know, you're saying that we don't have that many types of ticks here in, in North America, relatively speaking. Yeah. But, I mean, globally speaking, they are the number two animal vector for diseases. Oh, yeah. So Seems like they're pretty well equipped to be that vector. Yeah. And yeah. that leads right into what I was just about to say. So we mentioned that ticks are parasites. And a a good way I saw them described was they are parasitic blood pumps. Oh, boy. (laughs) And uh, as we just mentioned, they're the second primary disease vector for humans, but they are the primary disease vector for domestic animals. So if you have a domestic animal that's that's having a disease spread from some other species, it's probably going to be a tick, Mm -hmm. uh, most likely. They can spread bacteria, viruses, they can spread protozoans, and 
they do need to get blood for each of their life stages. So each of the stages in their life cycle, they do need to have a blood meal to move on to the next stage. You know, very often we think of uh, only females, you know, if you're thinking of a parasite that's gonna draw blood, I often think of mosquitoes and it's only the female that's gonna draw blood. Um, she needs that for her eggs. But with ticks, remember they're not insects and they're taking a blood meal at each of the stages. So you have the egg and then you have the six-legged larva. Then you have an eight-legged nymph and then finally an adult. And typically to move through all of those stages, the ticks that we have around here in the Northeast, especially the, the black-legged tick, which is also known as the deer tick, that's Ixodes scapularis, they will take about two years to go through that cycle. But the crazy part is, if they cannot get blood, they can survive for months or even years in one stage, just waiting for a host to come along. That's terrifying. <laughs> yeah. And even scarier, the immature ticks can be as small as, you know, if, if anyone's looking at a book right now, as small as the period at the end of a sentence. <laughs> yeah. That's how tiny uh, the little ticks could be when they're, when they're very young. So it can be very hard to detect the young ones. And I even read a, uh, a frightening article that started off by saying a woman noticed a little spot on her baby's cheek and for two or three days she thought it was just a little scratch. Oh, yeah. But then when she actually looked at it more closely, she realized it was a tick. Oh, jeez. Uh, a little tiny tick that had been on her baby's face. Um, but thankfully, the, they had it tested and no Lyme disease or anything. Yeah, good. <laughs> uh, even the adult ticks, when they're not engorged, can be slightly smaller than a sesame seed. Wow. So again, from a, a strictly scientific point of view, these guys are amazing. They have these adaptations that make them really good at what they do. Yeah. <laughs> they're small. You don't feel them. Uh, and they can get in, get what they need, and get out. Well, get in, get what they need, pump back the stuff that they don't want back <laughs> into your body, and then get out. Yeah. And you talked about their, their bodies expanding. Yeah. So I have a, a good story to, to illustrate this. So uh, up in Algonquin Park, uh, we were up there a while spruce back. Spruce grouse. Yeah, for the yeah. spruce grouse episode. So this is a, a park up in um, southern Ontario in Canada. Well, they have moose up there. And I was up there a number of years ago, and during the winter time. And we saw some, some moose out in the woods, and looking at them through binoculars, you could see that the, the flank of this moose was covered in all these little spots. Oh, no. And, you know, from a distance, we couldn't really tell what they are, but when we got back to the visitor center, we were talking um, to one of the staff there, and they're like, oh, yeah, those are the winter ticks. So oh. that's a species of hard tick that's, that's common. Um, they share habitat with moose. Moose is, their, I guess, one of their main hosts. Wow. Those guys, when... They become an adult. They're about the size of a grain of sand. But when they feed on a moose, they can grow 10,000 times what? their normal size to the size of a grape. Holy <laughs> crap. But they can actually cause the death of moose indirectly because these guys can become so infested where they have 50 to 100,000 ticks on one moose. Mm -hmm. When they become that infested, they will often, they will start to itch and the moose will rub on anything they can to try and relieve the itching. Uh, rocks, trees, even with their hind feet, and scrape off fur. Yeah. And they can actually scrape off so much fur that during the wintertime then, they will, um, they will succumb to hypothermia. Oh, no. So, so it indirectly kills them. Yeah. So they said back in 1999, the, um, the winter tick, there was an outbreak, and they had... Um, 
big losses into the moose population up there. Because so many of them died um, indirectly from this abundance of ticks. Yeah, don't worry. Um, humans are really good at, at removing ticks, actually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so if you have 51 to 100,000 ticks on you... <laughs> Oh, no. Don't even say that. The whole time I was researching this episode, I felt like I had ticks crawling yeah, out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I still do. <laughs> so, as far as where they can be found, uh, you know, I typically always thought of them like in, in areas with tall grasses. Yeah. Because that is a place that they, they frequent. But you can also find them in woods like where we're walking right now. Yeah, and I'm looking at all this leaf litter around. Yeah. That's what I was stepping on at Zor Valley. I was just standing on leaf litter. And that's when ticks got on me. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're sitting on the ground, um, checking out wildflowers or having lunch or going to the bathroom (laughs) out in the woods, that is an opportunity for a tick to grab onto you. So... So just stick to the middle of the path. That's you know, right. it's concentrated impact anyway. Uh, it's That's why paths are there. Stick to the paths and Don't you'll avoid the ticks. Yeah. <laughs> so so no, I, no off trail. Can I talk about questing? Did you come across this? Go ahead. Go. Did you? Well, I know what questing is. <laughs> I mean, uh, live action role play? <laughs> With ticks? Possibly. Oh, what? <laughs> They're dressing up. Uh, so this was a, a, a part that I found, uh, a part of their life cycle that I found oddly charming okay but likewise uh, also equally disturbing adventurous yeah so romantic <laughs> all of that <laughs> okay <laughs> they can't jump they can't fly so what a tick does to find a host is they can sense um carbon dioxide they can sense body heat um some ticks can even recognize like colors and what researchers think is that ticks can kind of recognize high traffic areas whether it's uh, you know a game path where deer frequent or uh, mice frequent or, or humans frequent, mm-hmm. and then what they'll do is they'll climb up onto a branch or a blade of grass, latch onto that with their back two pairs of legs, mm-hmm. and then their front two pairs of legs, which have spines and um, hooks on the end, claws on the end, they hold those up in the air, and they just wait for something to walk by. And it, again, it can take months, you know. Sometimes, I don't know about years, I don't know if they'd stick on that one spot for years, but they just wait for something to come by, and then as soon as it does, they grab on. Some ticks will latch on right, um, they'll, I should say, they'll stick their mouth parts in right where they climb on, but other ticks will move around the body. I'm very lucky that I've always had them crawl around my body first before trying to sink their teeth in. So have you ever had a tick attached to you? No. All right, only I, I've only ever had them crawling on me. I've had a tick attached to me two different times. Mm-hmm. Tell us where. <laughs> <laughs> Have I told you this? I, you told me at least one of these stories. Yeah, and uh, it you was, said you found one when you got home I, <laughs> one time. <laughs> I found one in the uh, worst place a man could have a tick attached, <laughs> and that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> this uh, yeah. is a family podcast. But but actually. Um, so the uh, both the head and the pubic area, those are the two areas that ticks concentrate. Like yeah. those are the two most popular areas you'll find ticks. So they like areas that are dark and warm. Yeah. So when you do a tick check, which you, you should always do, yeah. um, those are two good places to check. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> groin, head, <laughs> yeah. armpits. Yeah. And luckily, for the most part, you can usually check your own groin, I think. <laughs> oh, but the, one, one suggestion that I heard was to bring a mirror with you. Right. Because yeah. there are certain parts of your groin. Yeah. <laughs> for sure. Hard to look at. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so I'm ready to talk about how they spread disease. Go ahead. Yeah, I can move on to disease. Okay. So obviously they spread it through feeding. Um, and as you talked about, 
when they latch on, the length of time that they're latched on depends on what type of ticket it is. Mm -hmm. uh, but once it inserts the hypostome, I talked about how they secrete the cement-like substance, the anticoagulants, and then they'll suck blood slowly if you're a hard tick. Yep. Uh, more quickly if you're a soft tick. One thing I do want to say about the soft ticks is that, I, I forgot to say this earlier, but they do feed very quickly at first, so usually for the first 10 to 30 minutes, mm -hmm. and then they switch to a slower feeding, and this is when they exude that excess water, um, specifically with the soft ticks, uh, through their anus. Uh, and I don't know if I said this directly, but all the ticks that we have to worry about are all hard ticks. Right. None of the soft ticks that I did research on transmit disease. Yeah, I didn't find any either. And I think that's why... Oh, I did allude to this earlier. Because I said the hard ticks are feeding that water back into you through their salivary glands. Right. But the soft ticks don't do that because they get rid of the water through their anus. <laughs> so their anus water isn't going into your body again. That's so, beautiful. <laughs> so the, the hard ticks are really set up in a great way to give us diseases where right. the soft ticks are more of our friends, I think. They're <laughs> sucking my blood, but they're not trying to give me a disease that I know of. Uh, I'm sure that there are diseases, more but... more of a friendly blood-sucking parasite. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like a vampire. <laughs> a nice vampire. Yeah. All right. But I think it's important to, to mention that the diseases we're worried about, like Lyme disease, they do not originate in the tick. The tick picked that bacteria up, because Lyme disease is, is spread, it's a bacteria. Mm -hmm. They picked that up from a host. Could be a mouse, right? Again, I, I mentioned it before, but I'll say it again. The tick that carries Lyme disease is the black-legged tick, also known as the deer tick, Ixodes scapularis. And we do have other ticks in North America and the Northeast, but the black-legged tick, that is the one that's going to carry Lyme disease. There's uh, another member of that genus in Western North America that carries Lyme disease. And then over in Europe, I believe there's other members of that genus too that carry Lyme. Right. I think it is important to say that the black-legged tick is the main vector for Lyme disease. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's the one that I was talking about that Canada's kind of worried about yeah. because uh, they do hitch rides on birds and they can really go pretty far right. north. And actually, uh, interesting enough, the thrushes are actually the best at carrying them north, both the hermit thrush and the gray-cheeked thrush. How do they figure that out? Well, because, <laughs> because they know that the ticks attach to them yeah. and they also know how much the ticks can migrate in a day, which is uh, just about 200 kilometers per day. And so that, that means they could do about a 1,000 in five days. And the ticks can stay on for a while, and the thrushes move pretty far north in Canada. Sure. Yeah. But uh, I did find it in my research that Lyme disease has not penetrated very far into Canada. Like, it's just making its advance now. I think that's changing. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> I actually have some research that talks oh, about how fast they're expecting it well, to Well, let's spread. move on. There are other animals that, that can carry Lyme. Even uh, mosquitoes can carry it, but... As far as research can tell, no other animal is going to spread Lyme disease to humans except ticks within that genus. Exotis. Exotis. That is the, the tick we have to worry about if we're talking about Lyme disease. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to worry. Like even if a, a, a fellow human has Lyme disease, really there's no way that, that we know of that it can be spread from human to human. It's strictly spread by the Exotis tick. Right. All right. Now... Let's talk about how long a tick has to be attached. Because if you find a tick on your body, mm -hmm. right, uh, if you just went hiking that <laughs> afternoon, keep in mind that the tick must be attached for 36 to 48 hours 
before the bacteria that can cause Lyme disease can be spread. Oh, that's really good to know. Yeah, so uh, there's been research that's gone into this, and some people have, have argued with that, but uh, there was one study in 2001 that looked at 66 attempts to infect mice with the bacteria. Zero became infected when a tick was attached for only 24 hours. Mm-hmm. And then an earlier study found that just one out of 14 mice became infected after a tick had fed on it for 36 hours. Yeah. So there's been other research that has backed this up as well. And it seems once you hit that uh, kind of day and a half that the tick has been on you, your chances of, if it does have the Lyme disease bacteria, your chances of being infected increase. But if right. you can get it off quickly, then you should be good. Yeah, the CDC actually recommends that you should definitely take a shower or something equivalent within two hours of returning from a hike. Yeah. And also, if you're worried that ticks are on your clothes, you can throw them in the dryer on high heat, and that would actually kill the ticks. Okay. But if the clothes are wet, you should probably put them in there for a little bit longer. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. All right, so can I talk a little bit of just about Lyme disease in particular? So uh, we're, we're really focusing on Lyme disease, but there are many other tick-borne diseases. Yes. Um, like I had said before, there's uh, Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, there's Anaplasmosis, there's uh, Colorado Tick Fever, there's the Heartland Virus, there's, there's a lot of things. But most of the symptoms for these diseases are variable. So some of them aren't too bad, some of them are pretty awful, but they're temporary. Some are life-threatening if you don't get them treated, yeah. and some don't really have treatments. The thing is... Our podcast isn't long enough, and we're not experts in, um, you know, medicine and disease, and we're not entomologists. So the CDC actually has done an incredible job listing all the ticks um, in the U.S. that carry specific diseases, what those diseases are, the treatments, the symptoms. They do a great job. But Lyme disease is really the most popular one. and <laughs> The most popular. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> it, it's not... I don't know if it's technically the most deadly one but it's definitely no. the most widespread yeah. and it has some pretty harsh uh symptoms yeah well i chose to focus on lyme disease specifically because um i've heard some reports uh on the radio and, and through other sources that they're predicting there are some people predicting that this year is going to be worse than previous years it's because be of our mild winters particularly bad well there's there's different reasons so i wanted to look into that and say okay. oh, all right well is this is this, is this accurate but to get back to just generalities about Lyme disease, do you know why it's called Lyme disease? I don't know, no. Because it was first detected back in the 70s in Old Lyme, Connecticut. Okay. So uh, initially it was thought to be um, juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. Oh, Because okay. one of the symptoms is joint pain and yeah. um, very arthritis-like symptoms. So, But then people started getting partial like palsy on their yeah, face. Exactly. <laughs> Things exactly. that you don't associate with arthritis. <laughs> So it is the most common disease spread by ticks in the northern hemisphere. Yeah. So if you're going to get a disease from a tick, chances are that it's probably going to be Lyme. Yeah. Uh, and in the U.S., the CDC has actually just bumped up their estimate of how many cases there are uh, because they're thinking a lot of cases, since it can be difficult to diagnose, uh, a lot of cases go unreported or they're confused for something else. Um, so right now they're thinking it's about 300,000 cases a year perhaps more. Wow. So I'm sure you've heard, what's, what do most people look for? Like if they're worried they have Lyme disease, what's... Oh, the, I think they usually look for, is it maybe like a, a rash around the bite? Right. So there's a, a bullseye rash. Mm-hmm. So you have these rings of red. Uh, it usually does not, it's not painful or itchy. 
It's just um, this different coloration on the skin. But keep in mind that, you know, depending on your source, anywhere from 25 to 50% of people don't get that rash. Mm -hmm. So if you find a tick uh, and it's, you think it's been on there, on your skin for more than a day and a half, um, but you say, oh, I don't have a rash, I'm, I'm, I should be fine, that's not always reliable. So you might want to go in and get checked. I also know plenty of, I mean, since we live in this naturalist type world, yeah. I do know plenty of people that don't shower every day. Yeah. And, uh, and I would say that's totally fine. But if you are just out hiking in places where you think there might be ticks, that might be the night to take a shower. Yes, definitely. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Especially in uh, spring and early summer, because that seems to be when infections are the worst. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, now... Early symptoms are very flu-like, fever, headache, feeling tired. But then if it goes untreated, then like you said, you can have um, partial or complete facial paralysis, like Bell's palsy. Mm -hmm. um, you can have joint pain, severe headaches, neck stiffness, even heart palpitations. Yeah, nerve pain. Yeah, and then um, even months to years later, even when you've been treated, because there is a, a treatment of antibiotics, it takes you know two to three weeks. Mm -hmm. Even if you've been treated, um, symptoms can linger, even for months or years. Well, I, I heard that only in a small percentage of cases, symptoms can last for more than six months. 10 to 20% is what I found. Yeah. Yeah, 10 to 20%. And that's called chronic Lyme disease. Yeah, right. And they're still trying to figure out, like, why that is, what's going on. Um, and along what you were saying, the National Institutes of Health, uh, they funded several studies, and they found that when um, Lyme disease was treated, most patients recovered within a few weeks right. when antibiotics were taken by mouth. Yeah, so that's the good news. Is yeah. That it is typically treatable, uh, and then you can go on, live a normal, healthy life. Yeah. So I don't know if we've said this already, but cases of death from Lyme disease are, are not very common. Right. So just get treated. And I hate to keep jumping back to these other diseases, but it's always important that if you if you know that you got bit by a tick and, you're st and you feel anything like fatigue or headache yeah. or anything like that, that it's important to go to a doctor and let them know if you can capture the tick, if you can kill and save the tick in like a little bag or something. Yes. That's probably the best course of action because if they can identify the tick, they can narrow down the disease you may have picked up. And if you can treat it quick, it's incredibly likely that you'll be perfectly fine. Right. But as, as long as you do uh, get some treatment. And as you said, if you can save the tick, you know, do so. Because uh, if, if they can ID the tick, it can help narrow down. If you do have an illness, what that illness is going to be, because certain ticks carry certain diseases. Yeah. And in a lot of my research, some sites recommended sending the tick, uh, if it's a black-legged tick, for testing if it has uh, the Lyme disease bacteria. Mm-hmm. But that's not very reliable. Okay. Now, there were some sites that said, so don't even bother sending the tick in. Um, to get tested because you can actually send the tick in yourself you can pay to have it done to yeah. be tested for Lyme disease uh, but one researcher uh, in, in a follow-up said look just because testing the tick for Lyme disease isn't always reliable that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it because in those um, rare instances when they can positively say yes this tick is carrying the Lyme disease bacteria it helps researchers track the spread of the disease. So, like, they can say, well, we got 100 ticks from this county in New York, and um, five of them did test positive for Lyme disease. Yeah. But we know that at least there's that many. What if last year there were only one? There was only one. Um, so, 
testing individual ticks, while it's not always reliable on an individual case-by-case basis, um, it does help the larger study of Lyme disease. Yeah, definitely. So, um, but just for the individual, for yourselves out there, keeping the tick can help uh, if you can identify it, or the doctor can identify it, then they know what disease that you have the potential of having. Yeah. So that seems like a very convoluted way to explain all that. Sure. <laughs> but also keep in mind, folks, that um, the tests for Lyme disease in the early stages of the disease, uh, you can get false negatives. It can be hard to t- detect in the early stages. So just because you've been tested early on, but you're still having these symptoms, um, if your doctor's reluctant to test your to test again, mm-hmm. just encourage them to do so. Yeah. Yeah. Because you may come up negative, and then later on, you'll be positive. Mm-hmm. All right. So what about, uh, do we want to talk about prevention? Yeah. Let's yeah. jump into prevention. That was, I was actually going to suggest that, too. Okay. So how do you uh, take care beyond never going outside again? Well, like you had already said a few things. Just be extra cautious in the, uh, between April and September, right. you know, the spring and summer months. Just in general, avoid contact with them by staying in the center of trails. Um, avoid brushy areas. Uh, another thing you could do, and I know this might be a little controversial uh, in some circles, but you can treat your uh, clothes and exposed skin with DEET. DET. Yes. And also, you can treat your clothes with permethrin as well. Yeah, I've heard about this. Yeah, and I guess the permethrin actually stays on your clothes for a while, even after washings. So it's something that you wouldn't have to apply every single time. Right. So yeah. using any of this stuff, I mean, there are concerns with using DEETs and, yeah. and anything like that. So just be aware of those. I think I already mentioned that it's a good idea to shower within two hours of getting home. Mm-hmm. Definitely do what we said before, the full body check. Using a mirror. Uh, We're a very good friend. Yeah, oh, a very close friend. And uh, also make sure to examine your gear and your pets as well. Yeah, I have had to pull one off of my dog before. So yeah. um, so even though I've never had one on myself, I did find something that looked like, it was kind of like skin colored. I was like, oh, what's this weird growth on my dog? And I'm like, oh my God, there's a little leg sticking out of his skin right where the growth, you know, is poking out of his body. And I'm like, ah, oh, this is a tick. This is disgusting. So I was able to... Uh, to pull it off of him and he's been perfectly healthy ever since <laughs> so i don't think i did it wrong um you also want to uh, set a new uh, tick safety fashion trend by tucking your pants into your socks oh i just bought some gaiters oh there you go yeah or wear gaiters yeah so gaiters are something that go over your boot and they go over the bottom of your pants right and it kind of just makes sure that nothing can crawl up your pants. Yeah, so yeah. wearing um, light-colored clothes as well as uh, long sleeves. My gaiters are black. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think uh, white gaiters would look a little strange. <laughs> fashionable, though. <laughs> and, and the last thing, and I'll just mention again, is that um, when you get home, uh, you can tumble dry your clothes. Low heat for 90 minutes or high heat for 60 minutes, that should take care of them. And I didn't know that. I didn't, I didn't actually have any idea that throwing them in a dryer would kill them. No, me either, but it makes yeah. sense. Now, what if we do find a tick on our skin? You're fucked. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. no. <laughs> it's over, man. <laughs> You're just supposed to um, put a, uh, a lit match on it, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, so they freak out, uh, <laughs> empty the contents of its mouth back into you. That's right. And so there's lots of old wise tales out there yeah. about... Uh, well, what I would do is I would squish the blood back into myself. I'm like, you ain't getting this. You ain't getting this. <laughs> That's mine. <laughs> so don't believe anything you, uh, you read on the internet about... Or what I'm saying right now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
<laughs> the the one thing you do want to do is use tweezers. Fine tweezers. Yes. And you want to grasp the mouth parts. And remember, the mouth looks like the head. Right. So it's almost like you're grabbing them by the head because that's the part that's sticking out from the tick body. Right. Because their eyes are kind of further, they're awkwardly further back on their body. <laughs> it's. Did, did you look at this when you're oh, looking yeah. at it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Their eyes seem kind of funny because it almost yeah. looks like all they are is a little walking head. Yeah. Because their eyes, un, unless they're engorged, it really does look like the eyes are kind of in the middle on of their the body, body almost. Yeah. yeah. Not not quite in the middle, but close. And you don't want to grab the body because, like you were joking just a moment ago, you, you're you going to be squeezing that stuff back in yeah. out of the tick. So. Uh, you could be infecting yourself if <laughs> yeah. you haven't already been infected, if that tick is carrying a disease. So you want to grab the mouth parts with uh, fine tweezers and then pull uh, firmly and gently up perpendicular to your body. So straight up from uh, the insertion point. Mm-hmm. And then the, the mouth parts should come out. Because if you're just grabbing the body and pulling, you could not only be squeezing stuff into you, but the mouth parts could remain in your skin. So as I said, the, the thing that kind of piqued my interest first about ticks is I've been hearing reports that, oh, this is going to be a really bad year for ticks. So I looked into the research and a lot, at least two or three of the articles that, um, not scholarly articles, but news reports I heard, went back to this one researcher, uh, Rick Ostfeld, who published a study uh, with some other people back in ecological applications in 2005. And his research was based here uh, in New York State at a, a research plots in Dutchess County, which is uh, near Woodstock, New York. And then they looked at weather variables, acorn production, or mouse abundance as predictors of Lyme disease risk. So uh, in analyzing these factors, what he found is that, uh, at least in his study, on his study plots, um, weather variables didn't seem to have a big impact. And I should mention that they also looked in um, seven other states in the Northeast. So they looked for a 10-year period between 1992 and 2002. And the weird thing is they found that um, acorns and mice abundance were strong predictors. So if you have a mast year where you have lots of acorns, the following year you would get lots of mice, you would get an abundance of mice, and then that would result in... Um, increased incidence of um, ticks carrying Lyme disease the following year. But he only found this on his study sites in Dutchess County. Okay. It didn't seem to carry over into the other study sites. So most of the... Now, this was in 2005. The strange thing is the two or three news reports that um, I saw reporting this, talking to him, he was saying, well, this year or last year we found lots of mice. So they're predicting, he's predicting that this year there's going to be uh, high incidence of ticks carrying Lyme. But I did come across some articles kind of responding to the news report saying, wait a minute, hold on, because you're referring to your study from 2005, but you really only saw those results on your study plots in New York. Mm -hmm. Those results didn't carry over uh, into other areas. So there were other things I looked at. that what are some predictors of how bad Lyme disease is going to be. And like with anything in ecology, it seems to be very difficult. Yeah. Um, Very complicated. One study looked at moisture, and the study did find that the more dry spells you have early in the spring, that's going to lower tick abundance later in the season. That seems to make sense. Mm -hmm. And so the wetter the spring is, 
the more ticks you're going to have. Okay. Um, that seems to make sense. And then I also looked kind of at uh, large-scale, long-term predictions. You know, how is climate change going to affect it and habitat fragmentation? They did say that the one study I looked at from 2014 in evolutionary applications, they, did, they predict further northward expansion. So this goes along with what you were talking about mm-hmm. into Canada because this was uh, their study was based in Canada. And they said um, it's going to be driven not mostly by bird migration, okay, but by expansion of white-footed mouse territory. Because the white-footed mouse, at least here in the, the eastern part of North America and central part of North America, they're one of the main carriers of Lyme. Ticks get the Lyme disease bacteria from feeding on mice. Yeah. I, I, just just anecdotally, I feel like I would imagine that, that that mice would be more likely to have ticks than birds. No, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. So they predicted an expansion rate of two to six miles a year uh, between now and 2050. So that by 2050, it's going to be anywhere from uh, 150 to 300 miles further into Canada. So this study really piqued my interest because it, it looked at biodiversity. Mm-hmm. And this really opened up a whole new area that I hadn't thought about because this study was saying that it's kind of accepted. Have you ever heard of um, dilution effect? Uh, no. So the idea is that the more biodiversity you have, so species richness, that that could be a barrier to diseases being spread. So the more species you have, the less that disease has a chance to spread. And I mean, if you think of it in a simple way, if the disease is species-specific, if you have a bigger variety of species, there probably is going to be fewer of that disease vector species, mm-hmm. right? There have been, there've been lots of talk in research circles about the dilution effect, but they said that the modulating effects of species richness did not always reduce the number of tick nymphs in their study. Um, so... The reverse of the dilution effect, this idea that biodiversity is going to decrease disease, the reverse of that is application effects. So there's some idea out there that it's even possible that biodiversity could increase disease prevalence. Kind of going off of this particular paper, I started to look at lots of other papers, and this seems to be a hot topic of debate right now between researchers. So there was one a study published in Ecology, and this was in 2016, just last year, basically saying that species richness does not always translate into uh, lower disease prevalence. And then there was some back and forth in subsequent issues. People wrote letters in reply, and then the researchers wrote replies back. And I just want to read a little bit about the researcher's reply. Okay. Um, It says, the dilution effect is the sort of idea that everyone wants to be true. If nature protects humans against infectious disease, imagine the implications. Nature's value could be tallied in terms of human suffering avoided. That makes a potent argument for conservation. Okay? But these broad claims regarding the benefits of nature conservation for human health, while well-intentioned, are often flawed, and there have been several calls for a more nuanced scientific assessment of the relationship between biodiversity and disease transmission. So I probably looked at maybe 10 different papers that were related to this. And right now it's very inconclusive. So again, I mean, it's a very gray area. So the bottom line is that it probably depends on the disease and the species involved. Okay. How that equation works out. Um, 
more biodiversity or less biodiversity and what that's going to mean in terms of disease spread. So it, you can't probably make a blanket statement, but a lot of research is going into that right now. Nice. Yeah. Looking forward to seeing more of that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, so what else do you have? Okay, the last thing I want to touch on is something that... Uh, something I don't like to talk about. <laughs> People? Yeah. Oh, okay, <laughs> so the only reason I'm making an exception for this episode is because ticks may have played an important role in our evolution as a species. Oh. Yeah, so the question that some researchers have uh, asked and made some hypotheses about is, why are humans naked apes? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> You know, I mean, nudity, uh, in terms of not having a thick uh, coat of fur, is pretty rare in the it animal is, kingdom. Yeah. So out of the about 5,000 extant mammal species, there are very few that don't have hair, or if they do, it's very little. Um, that would be like the elephant, the rhinoceros, the hippopotamus, the walrus, pigs, and whales, and naked mole rats. We're the freaks of the mammal world. <laughs> <laughs> and, and a lot of these species that I mentioned are either aquatic or semi-aquatic, so there is some explanation there. But um, people have been trying to figure out why are we naked, uh, why don't we have hair for a long time, and... There's been a, a few different hypotheses. Um, there was the, the body cooling hypothesis. When men and women were first heading out into the savannas, you know, they're bipedal, they're running. Cooling would be, a, that would be an absolutely good thing to be able to do. Yeah. So the thing that's most exposed to the sun is the top of your head. You have hair up there. Yeah. You, you know, you're standing upright. That's exposing a lot of your, a lot of your skin, a lot of your body to the wind. So a lot of cooling effects. But unfortunately, in a lot of cases, if you take the whole day into account, like the cold nights and the hot days, fur actually kind of does a better job. <laughs> <laughs> fur keeps, uh, I mean, look at, look at um, the way people dress when they're out in the desert. Sure. When I worked in the desert, I was in long pants and long sleeves every single day and a hat and everything. You cover up, you know? And also, it, that, that doesn't explain the differences between hair, uh, between the sexes. Male and female generally have different amounts of hair on, on sure. average. Yeah. And then there was also the, uh, the aquatic ape hypothesis. And that's saying that about six to eight million years ago, hominids had an aquatic life period that lasted one to two million years. Uh, paleontologists haven't really found evidence for this, though we do find uh, human uh, fossils and remains um, near bodies of water, but... Like mermaids? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, like mermaids. So, um, uh, um, but, but then there's the question of, okay, so then, you know, uh, four to six million years have passed, and why would we keep those traits? Oh, I should say, maybe uh, hairlessness would have been an adaptation for water, because fur doesn't do a great job in the water. Unless you have super awesome fur like otters or something. Right, or beaver, yeah. Beaver or otter, yeah. yeah. And so, you know, in water, fat, like something that humans have, that's better for dealing with, you know, keeping warm and all that. So, um, but it, again, it doesn't explain why we held on to those traits even after moving out of the water and moving into colder climates again. And it also, again, doesn't explain the differences between men and women. Um, so that one, it's not completely accepted in any stretch of the imagination. Um, and then there's the, the third hypothesis that I'm going to talk about, and this is the last hypothesis, because uh, this one talks about hairlessness as an adaptation to reduce parasite loads. Ah. Um, and this is actually something that they have seen in experimental studies, and even naked mole rats. Uh, they live underground most of the time, and, and they're very naked, yeah. <laughs> and they actually have a lower ectoparasite load than, than what would be expected. A lot easier to spot. Yeah, yeah. Hey, you got a tick. Oh, you just pointed. <laughs> oh, <sorry. laughs> 
so just to quickly get into this one, humans evolved in Africa where there's a lot of biting flies and a lot of ectoparasites. And, uh, th you know, through studies and whatnot, we found that ectoparasites are either, uh, they're, they're easier to, to remove from bear skin, and also it might be the fact that they're less attracted to bear skin as well, yeah. which would make some sense sure. because uh, they're harder to remove from hairy places. So Yeah, if you've ever tried to remove a fleas from dogs and cats, it's not yeah. easy. Yeah. At this point, humans were living in close quarters with each other. Ectoparasite transmission could spread pretty easily. And unfortunately, like we were just talking about, ectoparasites, like ticks, they hold a lot of different diseases. Yeah. And if you're getting uh, ectoparasites on you and you're getting diseases, it's definitely going to lower your fitness. So those people that were born with less hair were probably made, made fun of, but they survived to reproduce better than their yeah. hairy brethren. Right. So, yeah, it's hypothesized that reduced hairiness or increased hairlessness, whichever one, whichever route you want to go, um, that may have increased your Darwinian fitness sure. in some ways. And, and I should say that it's also thought that sexual selection often relies on traits that initially had naturally selected advantages before they were exaggerated by sexual selection. So hairlessness may have been exaggerated by the fact that a mate would see hairlessness as something that's attractive. Sure. The natural selection point of view would be they're more fit to breed. They don't. They have less diseases, less parasites, yeah. and then that was also encouraged by sexual selection as well. And I should say that hairlessness isn't something that any animal can do. Humans were lucky enough that we evolved a sort of intelligence in some way, so we could create clothes, shelter, right. we could use fire, and other animals can't do that. So that's why you don't really see too many animals becoming naked, because they can't handle with the disadvantages that come with being naked. Like I said, when it's cold, you'll get too cold. When it's hot, you'll get too, too hot. hot. <laughs> All these unfortunate disadvantages with being naked. And then there was a question, why do humans still have some hair left? And I said before that, you know, hair on the top of the head actually is pretty decent in terms of protection. Yeah. It, it protects from UV rays. It protects your head even from hitting your head on things. <laughs> your, your hair does do a little bit of protection in that regard. Sure. Your head is another one of those areas of your body that you don't want to be losing too much heat from, and hair actually helps keep the heat in. It's kind of like a boundary layer sure. that, that makes it so you lose heat a little bit less. Yeah. So you bald folks out there, <laughs> you will get colder faster. The one thing that Bill and I had mentioned before is that the retention of pubic hair actually poses a bit of a challenge for the ectoparasite hypothesis. Yeah. Um, That's the worst place. But it may just be because it's butting up against another form of selection. So an interesting hypothesis for why we keep our pubic hair is because that area of the body is especially conductive to pheromonal signaling between the sexes and uh, warmth and humidity and actually the hair kind of traps those those scents and whatnot, which kind of sounds gross, but uh, it's part of our biology anyway. Sure. So. And the difference between the sexes that I was bringing up that some of these other hypotheses did not really cover is that men would be out hunting and, and females would be raising children and usually staying at that home base much more often. Unfortunately, when you're staying at home in closed quarters, you're actually much more susceptible to parasites yeah, than sense. the men who are further out. So you would imagine that in an environment where you're more susceptible to parasites, you may adapt by having less hair for that specific uh, sex. Again, these are just hypotheses. This one, to me at least, makes the most sense. That's why I wanted to bring it up. And I like how it explains why we still have some hair on our body, the differences between the sexes, and uh, I like the idea of kind of a co-evolution between ticks and humans in that regard. Yeah, It's a pleasing idea. Yeah. So it's probably wrong. 
<laughs> and and it's it's not to say that it couldn't be a mixture of many things. The researchers said that it could be the ectoparasite hypothesis alone, or it could be working in concert with other forces as well okay. that led to our our nudity. <laughs> Tix, you have nuded us. <laughs> okay, so I think that's pretty much all. Uh, I'm disgusted. Uh, <laughs> well, the last thing before we do our wrap up. Sure. Uh, remember, I said I read that article. Five reasons to not totally panic about ticks and Lyme disease? Yeah. I'll just share one of them that I think it's important to remember is if you do find a tick on yourself, follow the steps that we talked about. But remember, not all ticks carry Lyme disease. So just because you find a tick on your body, number one, it doesn't mean it's been there long enough um, to infect you with anything. And even if it has been there for a long time, it doesn't necessarily... Um, have something that it's infecting you with. So I found two ticks on my body in the past. Uh, they'd probably been on my body for at least a day. Or they'd been on for a little while. I forgot you're one of those dirty hippies. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I never came down with anything. So yeah. I was bitten by ticks. Maybe they weren't on long enough to spread anything, or maybe they just weren't carrying anything. Mm -hmm. That's not saying that you shouldn't get checked out, but um, maybe not freak out immediately. Right. Okay, guys. So I hope you enjoyed the episode for this month. Um, as always... Uh, we want to thank our patrons. So thank you so much, Diane, Ken, Scott, Matt, Beth. We named the dog Indy, Paul, Molly, Rob, Alyssa, Dan, Dave, Chimera, Kimberly, and Lee. I think Bill and I are going to have to do patron levels on the website. Yeah. And I, unfortunately, guys, and you guys have been with us since the beginning. You were the guys who believed in us that, that really gave us our start. But so many names is actually becoming a little bit uh, unmanageable. <laughs> it's a wonderful problem to have. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I also want to thank a couple of websites that have actually kind of given us a shout-out without really telling us they gave us a shout-out. Um, there's uh, forgedfoodie.blogspot.com. They featured our website on other great forging resources. Oh, okay. They have a little section, and, and we're on there, so that's kind of cool. ColinPurrington.com. He actually has a little spot on his website that's called Blog Roll. And so we're, we're on that uh, list, which is pretty cool. Nice. I think Matt's on that list as well, In Defense of Plants. And then also uh, uh, there was a write-up on isthisfood.co.uk, and they actually mentioned us in a write-up. It was actually uh, a write-up called A Chocolate Cake and Some Thoughts on Veganism. Ah. It, the, the cake's not actually a vegan recipe, but <laughs> it, it's, it, it's kind of an inter interesting um, write-up. So uh, definitely check those guys out. We'll put some links in the show notes. Oh, and, and we did say we were going to have a little bit of an announcement um, at the end Correct. of the episode. So I guess I'll make the announcement because it's more or less about me. I was actually hired for a temporary job over the summer out in Illinois. Woohoo! Yeah, woohoo! <laughs> so unless the funding is pulled out on me at the last moment, which has happened on two other occasions yeah. I, throughout the years, I've, I've, I have had um, a couple jobs canceled at the last minute because of that. So I'll be moving away to Illinois for at least the next few months because I'll also be looking for more jobs out there. But just expect that Bill and I will be doing separate episodes for a little while. Right. Um, we'll have but, some guests with us. Yeah, we'll have some uh, guest hosts. And uh, the podcast is going to keep going no matter what. So um, it, hopefully I can keep doing it with Bill. Hopefully I, I get a, <laughs> a job that allows us to do that. But at the same time, we're just going to keep going no matter what. So if you have any of your own questions, comments, or episode suggestions, send us an email at thefieldguides at gmail.com. Visit us on Instagram at fieldguidespodcast. Follow us on Twitter at fieldguidespod. Like and follow us on Facebook and visit our website at thefieldguidespodcast.com. And like we always say, if you don't do a podcatcher like iTunes or Stitcher, you can always just download our episodes straight from our website. 
And if you believe in that karma magic, now is a great time to invest in some good deeds. <laughs> I hope that's not offensive. If you if you like what you hear and you want to support the podcast, you can do so on patreon.com forward slash the field guides. And if you're like me and you can't afford to financially support the podcast right now, there are many other ways you can help out. You can share our episode with a friend and or rate us and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. That really helps us get the word out to more people. All right, guys, so thanks for listening, and we'll see you next month for Episode 20. See you next time.